This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops episode 100. 100. Oh my God, we made it. (laughs) Yeah, let me bust that out. Yeah, Yeah. 100 episodes. Thank you all so much for listening. Here we are. Yeah, uh, (laughs) who would have thought? But yes, we made it. I can't believe we made it. Uh, But anyway, uh, Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes. No, that's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Yep. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Sid Ahmed Razala, also known as the train killer. He was an Algerian-born French man who was the prime suspect for the deaths of three women in France between October and December of 1999. And we chose this episode for our 100th episode because it was suggested to us by a fruity named Yazzie X4 or Yazzie by 4 on Instagram. All right. But before we get into it, how you doing? Um, so we're recording this a couple of days after the election, and there's no winner yet. So I'm nervous, but okay, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, I'm disappointed that the election was so close. I don't get it, but okay. 
Yeah, okay. I don't get it. Um, obviously, I, I'm assuming <laughs> I'm assuming by the time this airs that we will know who the president is. So consider no, yourselves lucky. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the fact that it was so close, like, what does that say? about um, Nothing America. Good. Very disappointed. Extremely. So how are you doing? I am doing great. Uh, we had a fun quarantine Halloween, if you can call it that. Uh, <laughs> the, the world is on fire and everybody feels <laughs> the worst for the kids. Uh, I actually felt sad for them, but we were like, what the hell are we going to do for Halloween? The numbers are up. Um, some people went trick-or-treating, but that was a choice that we decided not to make. Right. Uh, so we had our offspring dress up in their costumes. And uh, shout out to Bethany at Crackers in Soup. I saw yeah. this idea. Yeah, on her Instagram. I saw and, that, too. That looks like so much fun. Yeah. So basically, once it was dark, we turned off all the lights, hid candy around the house and in the backyard, and gave the kids flashlights and had them hunt for candy by flashlight. And uh, they had a lot of fun. Um, again, not the same as trick-or-treating, but right, everybody... Right, still super fun. It sounds like sounds like a good tradition to me. I think so, too. Um, though I don't imagine that things will be back to normal next year. But, hey, if they're not, we've got a plan <laughs> B lined up. Uh, and then we just watched a couple scary movies. Jaws is not that scary for little kids nowadays. No, uh, they weren't no. scared? Really? No. But one thing that was weird is I always tell my kids when we watch scary movies that ki- kids don't usually die in movies depending on the right. rating in our rated right. movies they do die oh that's true and that's i didn't true. realize that jaws was rated r oh. and a shark a shark killed a little kid oh no and like my, my kids were like mom you lied <laughs> uh whoops <laughs> but <laughs> it was it was fun uh and then we watched beetlejuice and anyway it was a fun halloween so yeah yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to get into listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Oh, so happy to Thank see you. you. Yes. Mm-mm-mm. So we got a beautiful voicemail from Allison. Mm. So we're going to play that for y'all. All right. Here it comes. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Wendy and Beth. My name's Allison, and I really want to thank you guys for making the How Not to Get Murdered section of your podcast, because I actually had to use it the other night. I was driving back home, back to my camp, my dorm at my school, and, like, we were pulled up by two random people in a truck. And two white people, and I got really scared, and they came asking us for money, and they looked like they were on, like, crack or something, and my brother was about to pull out some change, but I had, like, that that feeling, you know, so I was like, oh, gosh, I gotta go. I'm like, nope, one of the windows, and we zoomed off, but I just really wanted to thank you guys just to, like, trust my instincts. And pay attention to the speed because as soon as I go away, I saw like some fake temporary plates, and I was like, huh. But thank you again for your podcast. I really like it. Thanks, bye. All right. Thank you, Allison. We're so glad that we were able to help you and that you're okay. That's right. Hip hop air horns. <laughs> Whoops. For 
Allison. Yeah. We also got a message from Nakia, who said, my name is Nakia. I have been a listener since day one. Hip hop air horns to you ladies for your awesome podcast. I heard about a couple of serial killers of color. One is Gregory Green. Killed his family, went to jail, got out, did it again. Uh oh. (laughs) (laughs) And the other is a Canadian rapper who killed for clout. Mm. Could you guys consider doing a show about them? I would love to know more about those two stories. Please continue to keep up the great work, ladies. Well, Nakia, we've added Gregory Green to the list, and the rapper whose government name is Mark Moore has also been added to our case list. So uh, hopefully we will be covering them in the future soon. Yes, and hip-hop air horns to Nakia. Yeah. We got one more, uh, another Instagram message from Just Bear With Me, Please. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, I'm an indigenous from Canada, and I just listened to your episode about Swift Runner. I noticed that you mispronounced Wendigo. Yeah, we mispronounced it Wendigo, and it actually sounds like Wendigo. But interesting fact about that, in indigenous culture, it's considered bad luck to even say the name. Oh, Santa Maria. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. And they said it will draw the Wendigos to you. So the best way to beat this is to, and I think she means smudge, but it was smudgy. Um, And I think smudging is uh, burning sage. So I think I'm going to need to get some sage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I have considered it given the times that we're in. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. They went on to say that we should be okay because we mispronounced Wendigo. But now I said it right. So I'm I'm in trouble. I need to get me some sage. Oh man. I'll, I'll pray for you tonight. Yeah, pray for me, guys. <laughs> uh, we got two new patrons, Vegan Soul Ache and Kathleen K. Uh, so here are your tunes, uh, fam. Uh, so hello, Kathleen. I was wondering if after all this time you'd like to meet to go over podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, since we talked about South Africa recently, I wanted to do this one in the style of uh, that Sugar Man documentary, which, by the way, have you watched it yet, Beth? I haven't. Finding Sugar Man. Man? Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, here goes. Vegan soul, won't you hurry? Cause I'm tired of these scenes For a blue corn Would you bring back All the colors of my dreams Vegan so oh oh uh uh oh That's all I got Anyway uh, <laughs> Keep those messages and reviews And patron support coming yeah. We appreciate it all very much And let me give you your hip hop air horns, new patrons, because y'all deserve it. Yeah, for sure. And thank you to everyone for rocking with us. Uh, yep. Now we are going to just do a little discussion we like to pepper in now and then. Um, we don't think it needs to be said every episode, but we imagine there's some new listeners out there. So if mm-hmm. you're a first time or a long time, before we get into our episode, we'd like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk about or hear about sometimes, and race can be 
the same way. But both are just part of the world that we live in. And as global citizens, we all get to talk about this stuff. Um, not just It's not just for white people to talk about. It's not just for black people. And we want this, uh, or BIPOC people, we want this to be a safe space where we can all have discussions about all of the things. We're all learning all the time. It's sometimes we might make mistakes, but we cop to it, we learn from it, and we keep it moving on our collective quest to be our best sexy selves. Yeah. And uh, we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at Fruit Loops Pod at gmail.com. That's right. So now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hello. Hello! Welcome to BSP Believer Skeptic Podcast. The podcast where two idiots debate weird phenomena. I'm Chris. I'm the believer. I'm Cody. I'm the skeptic. We are an LGBTQ paranormal comedy podcast. <laughs> and this is how it works. Every week, we pick a strange but fascinating paranormal topic, such as... La Llorona. Voodoo. Crimes of passion. Empaths. Holiday traditions. Cryptids. Conspiracy theories. Incorruptibles. Ghosts. Telekinesis. Mind control. Deja vu. True crime. Medical miracles. Simulacra. Cursed artifacts. The apocalypse. Stigmata. Oh. <sighs> All right, and after presenting you with a lot of really fun information... I tell you why I believe... And then I debunk the crap out of it. Uh, of course. <laughs> and along the way, you might find some um, really TMI information. Some gay humor. And also some um, sexual innuendos. Yes. So tune in, have fun, and bye! All right, we are back. And remind us, who are we talking about, Ben? Today we're talking about Sid Ahmed Rizala, also known as the train killer, who killed three women in France in 1999. All right, so now we're going to get into some stats. Okay, Sid Rizala is our guy. Beth already gave you his AKA, the train killer. He was born on May 13th, 1979. So I think he was an Aries, maybe on the cusp of... No. Aries? Not Aries. No? No, no I, I'm an Aries and I'm... March to April. March to Shit. April, yeah. I want to say uh, Taurus. I think he was a Taurus. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, he had three victims, say their names and rest in power. Queens, Isabel Peak was 20. Emily Bazine was 20. And Corinne Kailu or Kailo was 36. Uh, his crimes took place from October 13th to December 17th, 1999 in France. His methods of murder were to push from a speeding tra overnight train, strangulation and stabbing with a knife. He was arrested on January 10th, 2000, and Rizala committed suicide by inhaling dense black fumes from his smoldering mattress in a Portuguese prison on June 28th, 2000. Wow, he was something. He really was. Interesting stuff. Can't wait to tell you all about it. But first, <laughs> we're going to get into the setting because context is everything. And if you don't like it, simply fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> so the setting is Marseille, France, which has one of the largest immigrant communities in France because of Marseille's geographical proximity to North Africa and France's colonial history there. Marseille is deeply linked to Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. And people of Algerian origin account for a large sector of the total population of France. Mm. In a past episode, we mentioned how in France, race is treated as if it doesn't exist. France is, uh, quote-unquote, indivisible. You aren't supposed to see yourself as black or white or Algerian or anything but French. But what ends up happening is that the racism and discrimination that non-white folks 
uh, in France experience or that uh, the perpetrators are in, uh, inflicting upon non-white people can't be named, identified, or dealt with. Yeah. Algeria is a part of the Maghreb region of North Africa, which is located in the northwest of Africa. And the majority of the people who live in this region are Muslim. Maghrebis were known in medieval times as Roman Africans or Moors. The Arabic word Maghreb means, quote, place where the sun sets or the West, as opposed to Mashriq or place where the sun rises, which is the East. Oh, I like the sound yeah, of that. It's pretty. Yeah. Uh, in modern usage, the Maghreb region is comprised of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, and Mauritania. People who come from this region are sometimes referred to as Maghrebis or Maghrebians. French colonial rule was established in Algeria during the years 1830 to 1947. It was characterized by violence and mutual incomprehension between the rulers and the ruled. According to the French politician and historian Alexis de Tocqueville, colonization, quote, made Muslim society more barbaric than it was before the French arrived, unquote, which I think is kind of racist. But the gist of it is that the French fucked with their culture. Whew, I'm glad you said it. Look at this is why she's an ally, folks, because <laughs> uh, that's what I thought. Anytime um, they use the word barbaric, you know, they're they're being racist. <laughs> yeah. And really, who's more barbaric than the colonizers themselves? Right. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that's kind of why I left it in here, because, mm -hmm. you know, they fucked with their society and made them barbaric. So mm -hmm. that's what mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think the same is true for um, chattel slavery in the United States and Jim Crow. Um, yeah. Historically, the men committing rape and murder um, without consequence were white men. Right. Um, and then the lie, the spin is now that black people are free. Now the fear is that black men are going to kill and rape everybody else right. when yeah. that's... Um, historically not the case. So yeah. uh, back to the story. Starting in the 1920s, Algerians began to emigrate to France. And from the mid-20th century on, due to the political turmoil in Algeria, large numbers chose to immigrate to France. And from 1943 to 1945, approximately 200,000 Maghrebins, Maghrebis, sorry, <laughs> Maghrebins. That's okay. Uh, Maghrebis. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sounds like a baseball player. Yeah, or like a, a kid's toy. The yeah. or a TV show. <laughs> That's not what it uh let me just restart. Maghrebis enlisted in France's armed forces. An additional hundred thousand or so Maghrebis participated in the war effort through working in wartime industries. But despite their contribution to France's war effort, their role was largely ignored after the war. Mm. Of course it was. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Shame on you, France. <laughs> The French government continued their oppression in Algeria, angering North Africans in France and causing the rise of African rights groups. African rights groups included the Algerian Populist Party and the Movement for the Triumph of Democratic Liberties. Uh, you guys aren't going to do it for us. We're just going to organize for ourselves. Yep. Um, as a result of pressure from businesses due to, the, due to a lack of workers in post-World War II France in the 1950s, the French government began encouraging Algerian migration. And in December 1958, they instituted the Social
Social Action Fund, which supported African immigrants by allocating 500 million francs toward Maghrebi immigrant shelters and housing. There was little opportunity to move freely throughout society in Algeria, so many were motivated to migrate to France for a better life. However, the condition that these immigrants found themselves in was not great, as many of the employers that took them on took them on as indentured servants. Mm. They were paid low wages and given little government aid compared to other workers. And from 1954 to 1962, the Algerian War, which was fought between France and the Algerian National Liberation Front, also contributed to an increase of Algerian immigrants. The war was characterized by guerrilla warfare and the use of torture. By the way, when I was a kid and I used to hear about guerrilla war on the news, Uh I was like, why are guerrillas fighting? <laughs> but <laughs> gr- not it's, that kind of guerrilla. Not that kind of, it's when I see it, it's like guerra, guerra, like right, guerra war. means war in Spanish. Yeah. So when I see it spelled, it makes total sense. It but makes sense. My yeah. little kid brain is like, what are gorillas well, doing? Sounds fighting? just like the animals. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, grown ups, <laughs> I'll let you guys continue watching gorillas fight on the news. news like about what the gorillas? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Interestingly, during the Algerian War for Independence, women fought as equals alongside the men, and the National Liberation Front ensured the equality of men and women, which was reflected in the 1976 Algerian Constitution. But these rights slowly started to diminish, beginning in 1980, when an order was passed which prohibited women from traveling unaccompanied by a male. That is uh, how it starts, right? Little by little rights rights are plucked here and there. Yeah. Uh, In 1962, after Algeria won its independence, 900,000 European Algerians fled to France within a few months for fear of revenge from the National Liberation Front. The French government was unprepared to receive such a vast number of refugees, which caused a lot of turmoil in France. They're coming to steal our jobs. <laughs> uh, you know you know how people do. Yes. Yes, I do. During the war, the French government used racism as a tool to delegitimize the efforts of the African nationalist groups. They depicted Algerian immigrants as barbaric in propaganda campaigns. This was massively effective, negatively impacting public opinion on African immigrants. And a 1953 survey by the National Institute of Demographic Studies showed that North Africans and Germans were ranked last in sympathy levels for immigrants. Mm. And Germans because of World War II. (laughs) Sure. Right. It's very fresh in people's minds. Yes. But even when, I don't know if you've ever taken like a bias um, study, you can just go online uh, and mm-hmm. I think there's one like a Harvard Institute or something. Just Google like a bias study and they show you okay. p- pictures of like kids, white ones, brown faced ones and black faced ones. And depending on your race and background, you will be more partial and less biased to one than the other. And interesting white people's who uh, white people in general who um, are not put into spaces where they have to interact with people of other races when they see a black or brown face, their natural inclination is to be afraid of it because it's unfamiliar um, right. and to see it as bad. 
So hmm. anyway, uh, this sort of racial propaganda continued on into the 60s with the help of public health institutes. This is another way they do it. Uh, they targeted Algerian immigrants along with other African immigrants from Mauritius, Mali and other countries. A study published in 1963 entitled Black Workers in the Parisian Region <laughs> Parisian Region uh, outlined reasons why for public health African immigrants were not beneficial for France. Here we go. Quote, they are accustomed to wearing practically nothing in Africa where the temperature ranges from 90 to 100 degrees. And when they arrive in Paris, especially during the cold winter, they are highly prone to catching disease like tuberculosis, unquote. This report also cited Africans perceived diets as reason to reject them as workers. These public health officials were under the impression that Africans ate only simple foods such as rice and beans and therefore could not survive the heavy workload required of them in France. Okay, guys. <laughs> in reality, of course, Africans ate a variety of healthy foods and balanced meals. This report further argued that these food deficiencies meant Africans were ridden with disease. Mm. As a result, African immigrants in France were required to carry around passbooks with detailed medical information and were often randomly stopped and checked by French officials. That's shitty. Yeah. That's awful. Um, and I can't imagine. I mean, people flee for a lot of reasons, but stuff was it it was hot in in mm -hmm. northern Africa. And so thinking that France will be a better place for you and your loved ones to um, carry on and survive. Um, but you're met with resistance. This kind of bullshit. This yeah. Kind, yeah, this bullshit. Um, but welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Uh, this, what we described above, is a tool of white supremacy, rewriting the truth and history to fit the white supremacist narrative that diminishes the value of othered human beings and making it easier to subjugate them and treat them less than human. The big lie is that African history begins when Africans, North Africans, or any, any immigrant leaves their home and arrives in Europe um, or the Americas. When people um, leave a place, it's like their history is completely gone. And that is just not true. Yeah. Yeah. And on October 17th, 1961, during the Algerian War, under orders from the head of the Parisian police, the French National Police attacked a demonstration by 30,000 pro-National Liberation Front Algerians. Uh, this is referred to as the Paris Massacre of 1961. Wow. Um, that's something I don't remember reading about in my history yeah. books. Yeah, we wouldn't have. Yeah. Uh, and after 37 years of denial and censorship of the press in 1998, the French government finally acknowledged 40 deaths as a result. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's decades later. Although I know. There are actually estimates of 100 to 300 victims. Death was due to heavy-handed beating by the police as well as mass drownings. Jeez. As police officers threw demonstrators into the river again. I... Without words. I get the idea that the French police were pretty brutal back in the day. Mm, okay. Okay. That's that's the feeling I get from researching this case. Yeah. Well, um, you heard it here. Uh, they just, they reported, acknowledged 40 deaths, but the number is actually close to 100 or 300. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. 
That's very problematic. Yes. Yeah. Racial bias showed a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s with the French political party, the National Front. Jean-Marie Le Pen, the leader of the National Front, led with the slogan, quote, Two million immigrants, two million unemployed. Le Pen is also quoted as saying, yes, I believe in racial inequality. They do not all have the same capacity to evolve, unquote. And I believe Le Pen's, uh, I don't know if it was his niece or his daughter, was running for high office in France not too long oh, wow. ago. And the concern was that she same had the same beliefs, racist yeah. views as her uh, predecessor, Dick- who was a relative. Whoever he was. <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if it was her dad or her uncle, but these views are problematic. And when people are willing to, like, say them out loud, say the quiet thing out loud, that's scary. Yeah. That's what we're dealing with yes, right exactly. now. Um, during this time, books with black children featured on the covers were banned. As the 1990s progressed, the National Front's influence grew. The group took political control of the French city of Toulon and promised to deny housing to African immigrants living in the city. Come on. Yeah, that's just horrible. All kinds of fucked up. Yeah. What's their address so I can send them a bag of dicks? <laughs> <laughs> a bag of just dicks by, by express mail <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, the algerian civil war or quote the dirty war unquote due to the extreme violence and brutality used against civilians was a civil war in algeria fought between the algerian government and various islamist rebel groups from december 1991 to february 2002 that's a long war um how many years is that? 92, 91 to Three, three years. Oh, the the entire war. Um, yeah, nineteen ninety one to two thousand. Oh, I was I was gonna say, uh, last year, uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars turned seventeen Holy and eighteen. Shit. And uh, there were some really funny things on Twitter, like quoting, "If I were the Afghanistan war in Afghanistan, or if I was the war in Iraq, Iraq." I am 17 going on 18 and I laughed you're how you're laughing now I cackled um that is a long that war. is a long war yeah but this one, it, this this Algerian civil war was also long. Yeah. Uh, by nineteen by nineteen ninety four, violence had reached such a level that it wasn't clear which way it would go. But by nineteen ninety six to nineteen ninety seven, the is- Islamist resistance had lost its popular support. Although fighting continued for several years after, there were fewer than one million mu- Muslims in Western Europe after World War II before guest worker programs fueled immigration. Today, there are about five million. Muslims in France alone. That change has exacerbated tensions between communities and local governments struggling to cope with the newcomers. Yeah, I think there was a stabbing just last oh, wow. week um, in Nice, I want to say, where uh, a teacher may have shown a photo that was in poor taste of the Prophet Muhammad. Oh, wow. And the Muslim community was uh, angry. Yeah. And um, somebody stabbed them. Went, 
somebody, yeah, and retaliated wow. by um, stabbing whoever uh, did that. Um, Marseille is the second largest city in France. Am I saying yep, that right? Yes, I've been to France three times. <laughs> okay. Uh, Marseille is the second largest city in France and one of Europe's oldest cities. It is also one of Europe's most ethnically diverse cities and also has a high proportion of Mus- Muslims and a sizable Jewish population. But according to Suzanne Stemmler, a French studies expert at the Center for Metropolitan Studies in Berlin, who has focused on youth culture in Marseille, if France is a very racist country, Marseille is its liberated zone. Ooh, take me there. (laughs) Marseille is a major French center for trade and industry with excellent transportation infrastructure, roads, seaport, and airport. And although in the 70s, Marseille had a reputation as a seedy city, home to drug lords, a la The French Connection. What's that? The movie, The French Connection? Never heard of it. Never heard of it. It's from the 70s about uh, drugs. Doing (laughs) drugs. Drug dealers, big like uh, drug lords, stuff like that. Yeah, it's a very famous movie. Anyway. I believe you. (laughs) Today, Marseille is a multicultural city with a, quote, spirit of cooperation. Uh, They're making me want to go buy a plane ticket. I know. (laughs) According to a French sociologist, Jean Viard, 50 years ago, multicultural cities were were the norm on the Mediterranean. Today, he says Marseille represents a kind of laboratory for an increasingly heterogeneous Europe. It is, quote, a city of the past and of the future, end quote. Marseille has about 20 beaches. There are picturesque islands and calanques or fjords where rugged coves and scuba diving waters are just minutes away. Along the wide boulevards and small passages are tea rooms, Moroccan restaurants, Tunisian pastry shops, and halal fast food restaurants. Quote, you can feel like you're somewhere in Algiers, or you can feel like you're somewhere in Casablanca, unquote, said Zephora Nashit, an Algerian-born festival organizer. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Say less. I'll be there as soon as possible. Uh, But wait, uh, which is not to say that Marseille is without problems. The Marseille unemployment rate is higher than the national average, about 50 percent higher. And in some parts of Marseille, youth unemployment is reported to be as high as 40 percent. The city also still has a lingering reputation for crime. As the French news weekly Le Point observed in a 2007 feature about Marseille, quote, in the collective imagination of French people, the name is associated with the mafia. Truants and thieves. Yeah. End quote. Didn't know that. <laughs> hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. 
I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. So now we're going to get into Rizala's early life. Here we go. Take us there, Beth. Sid Ahmed Rizala was born in El Bar, Algeria on May 13th, 1979. He later said that in Algeria, he was, quote, raised by women. The Algerian Family Code is a document that governs marriage and property rights in Algeria. It is in stark contrast to the role that women had during the Algerian War for Independence. Yeah, that's interesting how they seemed so progressive, like the way towards progress. And, and then, then bam, eat, yeah, creep back. <laughs> yeah. Among other things that it governs, such as the legal age of marriage, it allows that a man may marry up to four wives and a wife is required to obey her husband and respect him as head of the family to bring up and nurse his children and to respect his parents and relatives. We don't know if Sid's father had more than one wife in Algeria, but it seems that like many other cultures, child rearing was the domain of women. So it is not surprising that Sid felt he was raised by women. Sid later said that he had been gang raped by seven or eight neighborhood teenage boys when he was nine. Mm. The Rizala family left Algeria in the summer of 1994 at the height of the Algerian Civil War after one of Sid's cousins had been murdered. Sid moved to Marseille with his father, who was a mechanic, his mother, three brothers, and a sister. Sid said he didn't want to leave Algeria and that they all cried when they left. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. That's a pretty traumatic um, move um, in the midst of things going crumbling around you and with the war and then going someplace new at a young age, uh, let alone a new country is very difficult. Uh, Sid had done well at school in Algeria, but within weeks of registering at a Marseille high school, he began skipping school and hanging out with petty criminals and drug dealers. His parents asked for him to be sent to a special school, but by autumn, he was associating with male sex workers hanging around Marseille, St. Charles train station and riding on the trains. His criminal record showed that he had been in trouble for petty theft and he had been imprisoned for violent crime and sexual offenses, including a serious sexual assault, the rape of a 14 year old boy in 1995. And on December 7th, 1995, he was sentenced by the Marseille Juvenile Court to four years in prison, which included 18 months closed and 30 months on probation. Well, um, my heart goes out to that little boy. Um, But also, that wasn't that long after he got to Marseille, right, that he... Um, got involved in these things. During the 18 months he served in prison for rape, he cut his wrists and wrecked his cell in fits of rage. Psychiatrists became alarmed. Welfare officer Sylvie Vasquez revealed after the Lisbon arrest. He suffered a lot, she said, and she also commented that Rosala, quote, had the violence and cruelty of a child, end quote. He also had epileptic seizures, which worried her. In the juvenile district of Leyun Remand Center, a lawyer described him as, quote, a suffering teenager, end quote. But according to some, he had a violent side, which lived under a seductive, smiling presence. He charmed people, including probation officers and policemen. French police eventually came to believe that he was a real-life Jekyll and Hyde-type character, with a sinister, disturbing side lurking just below the surface of a charming exterior. Well, uh, not for long. Um, <laughs> but, is I mean, that's the, right. They always seem like nice guys. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, not all of them, but a lot of them do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to get into the timeline. When he got out of jail, Rosala found work as an apprentice baker, but later said he made most of his money stealing and dealing drugs. According to him, he often went to Belgium and Holland to buy drugs, doing drugs, <laughs> and resell them. Described as good-looking, personable, and cheerful, he made friends easily. Rizala soon fell back to wandering around on trains, collecting fines from train agents because he normally traveled without a ticket. Ticket inspectors fined him 42 times for not paying his fare. Whoa. Rosala preferred half-empty, long-distance night trains. Mm. He visited relatives all over France before living in Amiens for a while. There, he met a young woman called Nadia Abdelmalek in 1997, and she became pregnant. The same year, Rosala had to go to court again for stealing a watch, and a judge sentenced him to 100 hours of community service. And in February of 1998, he was sent to a young offenders institute at Lyons, France, for pulling a knife on a French railway employee. At Lyons, he received visits from his family, but also from Nadia Abdelmalek, who brought his daughter, Sarah Yasmina, who was born shortly after his imprisonment. But while he was incarcerated, Nadia told him that she was breaking up with him to date another man. So he was born in 79. 
And so he's what, 18? Something like that, yeah. Um, 17? Wait, how old is he? 1999, he's 20. Okay, so he's 17 and 97? Oh, se- no. 18? 18, yeah. Okay. Okay, <laughs> Ooh, here we go, doing math. <laughs> Add that to our list Too of hard. podcaster strengths. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> doing math, doing Do, math. Doing math. Okay. Uh, so Rosala was released from prison in June of 1999. So by now he's 20. And he would regularly go to see Nadia and her baby daughter, who lived in an attic of a building in the center of Amiens. After a brief reconciliation during which neighbors said he looked after his daughter, quote, like a real father, end quote, Nadia broke up with him for good in October of 1999. And on the 13th of October, 1999, Isabel Peak, a 20-year-old English student at Limoges University, was waiting at Limoges Station for a train to Paris on her way home to Barliston, Staffordshire in England. At the time, she was just two weeks into an exchange program at the University of Limoges. She boarded the train to Paris, but never made it home. Her body was found the next day by a local farmer who discovered her partially clothed and dismembered corpse. Wow. And her baggage was found strewn along the line. Police believe that she had been pushed from the train as it traveled about 125 kilometers per hour, which is 78 miles per hour, through the disused station at Chabonnet, central France, possibly after a sexual assault. But later tests on Miss Peake's body found no evidence of rape and robbery was also ruled out. A murder investigation was not started for 10 days. Squeeze me? Yeah, 10 days, during which time the train that poor Isabel had been thrown from was left in service and cleaned at least twice, destroying any potential forensic evidence. For example, once Rosala became the main suspect, the train was searched for his fingerprints, but of course they weren't found because, you know, they it cleaned had it. been cleaned. Although <laughs> one of my new favorite podcasts, I'll shout it out in a later episode, but I'm going to shout it out here too. It's uh, called Wrongful Convictions. And mm-hmm. they talk about junk science and fingerprints are not as reliable as we like to think. Hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, but no fingerprints were found. So this guy was just la-di-da going about his merry way. (laughs) Uh, while reporting on the story, the British press complained about the number of unsolved British murders in France and put pressure on French police to solve Isabel's murder. Isabel's parents also pushed the police, but said they came up against a wall of bureaucracy following their daughter's death. Mrs. Peake was a French national and Mr. Peake spoke fluent French, so it wasn't a language barrier problem. Uh, yeah, the police have, um, they're not getting good marks in my book over here. On this one, yeah. No. French police drafted extra officers into the inquiry and a special investigations unit was set up. Officers began to track down everyone who was traveling on the train and the train was finally taken out of service and moved to a siding with its carriages sealed up. Police also began using the internet for the first time to appeal for witnesses. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a start. Yeah. Policing in France is different from policing in the United States. I don't fully understand all of it, and we don't have time to get into a big explanation here. But suffice it to say, it's complicated, y'all. The system (laughs) is over-dependent on the competence and character of individuals not trained in police work. Okay, that brings me confidence. 
And the authorities in this case were not communicating or collaborating with each other in a productive way. This is why I say y'all are messy hoes. This French police, messy hoes. What's your address? So I can send you all a bag of dicks. By airmail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> actually, I won't do that. But I'm just saying this is garbage. Basura. <laughs> There was also poor communications between the police and the state railways. Rizala was known to have been in Limoges on the day before Isabel began her journey home to Staffordshire in October. He was ejected by ticket inspectors from a train from Paris at Limoges Railway Station on October 12th, 12 hours before Isabel caught a train in the opposite direction. Mm. Uh, so although Rizala had been caught traveling without a train ticket in Limoges and his description fit the composite sketch of a young man seen chatting to Isabel as she climbed onto the 3.08 a.m. train to Paris that same night, he was not picked up. Rosala's sexual past, which included the rape of the boy in Marseille railway station, was something that threw authorities off when investigating the murders of young women. Um, I think they figured, oh, he's gay. He wouldn't attack women. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe it's because uh, things are, you know, hindsight is 2020 right. 1999 yeah. maybe police weren't understanding that rape is has doesn't ha have much to do with sex it's about power um yeah. so well there you go rosala was one of 30 possible suspects or material witnesses identified by investigators as having been on the train or near the limoges train station that day but he was not regarded as a more likely candidate than any of the others as his previous sexual offenses were with boys the special gendarmerie team was working to trace all of the 30 suspects and eliminate them one by one. It saw no special reason to focus on Rosala. I think this is a universal police problem that yeah. they get somebody in their mind and it's like they overlook everybody oh, yeah. else. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And sometimes they overlook the evidence itself in pursuit of their hunches and yeah. um, end up uh, pursuing things that allow the perp to go on even further, committing yes. more crimes and hurting more people. Just not yep. a good idea. No, uh, it's not. No. On December 14th, 1999, Corinne Kailo, 36, was traveling on the Calais to Ventimiglia overnight train with her young son to visit her mother in central France. She was stabbed to death in the lavatory. That's a toilet, bathroom, or washroom, where whatever you guys want to call it, uh, while her five-year-old son slept in a carriage. This is really sad. Guards found her lying in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed at least 13 times and she died later from her injuries. Inspectors found a blood-soaked baseball hat close to her body. Rosala was wearing a similar cap when he was found traveling without a ticket about two hours earlier on the journey from Calais to Ventimiglia. He had no money to pay the spot fine, so he had been forced to show his identity card to the ticket inspector to avoid arrest. As we said, Rosala's name was already on a list of 30 potential suspects or material witnesses identified in the search for Isabel's killer. Rosala then became not just a possible suspect, but the one suspect for both nighttime train murders. And now we're going to get into the investigation and arrest. Hit it, Beth. When Rosala came up as the prime suspect, his name was given to the press by the examining magistrate before a warrant was issued. Oh, boy. 
which alerted him and he was able to flee to Portugal. The investigation was described by the UK newspaper, The Independent, as, quote, more Clouseau than McGray. Now, I don't know who McGray is, but I have uh, old Whitey is a huge (laughs) Pink Panther fan. (laughs) And I know exactly what that means. So McGray is a fictional French policeman from some books written around the same time period as Agatha Christie, you know, that same sort of detective story. Sure, never picked up an Agatha Christie book once in my life, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) Very unlike Clouseau. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. I I see you, British press, with your cheeky headlines. Um, so Rosales' father later told police that his psychologically disturbed son, quote unquote, had been at his house in Marseille from the morning of the 14th through the afternoon of the 15th. No arrest warrant had been issued by the investigating magistrate in Dijon yet. So although police had allegedly been watching the house on Wednesday, they could not arrest him. They apparently missed Rosala when he left at around 6 p.m. on the 15th. He took a train to Barcelona where he was arrested for minor theft, but released because the French authorities had not yet posted his name with Interpol. (laughs) Great. Great. An arrest warrant was not even issued until the 16th. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcast, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Now, I don't want to stereotype people, but I'm just like envisioning the police like smoking cigarettes, eating croissants. Um, <laughs> uh, these Americans. Yeah, complain, so yeah, stupid. yeah com- complaining yeah. about like immigrants <laughs> and people who don't speak French well, like ruining their towns. And I don't know what else they do. Uh, d- drinking wine. Um, and just like not interested in solving crimes. And we, right. we, we mentioned earlier in the episode how just, I don't want to say incompetent, but they were um, unseasoned, yes. um, I think is a better word. And yes, we, 
There you have it. Uh, <laughs> on December 17th, 1999, the body of Emilie Bazin, a 20-year-old student, was found in the basement of a house in Amiens, North France. She had been strangled to death. This was the same house Nadia and Sarah Yasmina had lived in. Her decomposed body was discovered by police, buried beneath a heap of coal. So... I wonder when that happened. Well, let me tell you. Okay. (laughs) Her time of death was estimated to be sometime in October, and she had last been seen with a man answering Rosella's description on October 29th. So sometime between October 29th and December 17th. Okay. Traces of DNA, which were later identified as Rosella's, were found on her body. Okay, so we're getting somewhere. But by the way, October was not this this was a a terrible month uh after his girlfriend broke up with him yeah uh so france then launched a massive manhunt for rosala rosala fled to lisbon the capital of portugal via spain there he met a rich spanish businessman named armando sanchez and they began a relationship investigators believe that rosala would soon kill again They believe that at least two of the murders, including that of British student Isabel Peake, were committed on the 13th day of the month, which isn't entirely true because the one that was uh, murdered on the train in the... bathroom corinne uh-huh the mother yeah the mother she was actually murdered on the 14th but they're they're kind of pushing it a little here saying that um these two murders were committed on the 13th day of the month and his birthday was may 13th so apparently profilers told police to expect another murder on january 13th which i i think is bullshit but Okay. Okay. I've, I've never heard of that come up in a profiler's um, description. Like, yeah, their birth their birthday is a significant. I mean, day. it's not it's not impossible, but I think it's just silly. Yeah. Um. Sounds like a stretch. Look, the yeah. OG of true crime. She comes through every time. Uh, Detectives tapped the phones of friends of Rosala, hoping he would call. In early January, Rosala briefly phoned Nadia and Amiens using a false name, but giving a Portuguese number. Police were able to trace the public telephone to Lisbon uh, Lisbon suburb. And on January 12th, when Rosala walked up to the phone box, he was flung against a wall and handcuffed by plainclothes Portuguese police. I am Hassan, he screamed in protest until he recognized two detectives from his home city of Marseille. Whoops. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they know who I really am, he mumbled before bursting into tears. Mm. Orlando Romano, assistant head of the Lisbon CID, said that if the French police had not been there, the Portuguese might not have recognized Rosala, whose hair had been cut so short he barely resembled the photo posted in railway stations throughout Europe. I was going to say when he was he okay so he gave a fake name and then he was like oh man they know who i am and then he started crying like yeah it's a show like he's crying because yes. he thinks that that's the response he's supposed to have or um, because uh it's about him what like he's the star of the show they caught him oh so he's he's upset because he's caught not because of anything else oh okay i'll take that you win this. You win this round. OG. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm right or not. I'm just saying I'm just throwing it out there. That's possible that uh, it's he might have cried for uh, sympathy mm-hmm. or he may have cried because he's like, fuck, this is it. I caught I got caught. 
Uh, party's over. Yeah. Uh, Armando Sanchez was questioned about his friendship with Rosala, love at first sight, according to one detective. And when police raided Rosala's hideout, his bag was packed and he was carrying a train ticket to Madrid, where, from where he was supposed to fly to the Canary Islands with Sanchez. Ooh. In a controversial interview with French magazine Le Figaro. <laughs> Figaro, 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 Figaro. Figaro. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop. I can't stop. <laughs> I was just going to do that whole Robin Williams run from Mrs. Dow. Oh, man, I love that. I miss you, Robin Williams. Go ahead. <laughs> Rosala confessed to the murders of the women. He told a French journalist that he was high on drink and drugs, which uh, was bourbon and cannabis, when he approached Isabel at the Limoges train station. He said he saw a flash and felt, quote, ordered to kill Isabel Peak. Hmm. Quote, she asked to use my mobile phone. I lent it to her. I have always helped other people. She telephoned her bloke and took a drag on my joint. I saw that flash again, end quote. Rosala did not describe what happened next, but an hour into the journey, Isabel was pushed from the train. She she was just pushed. She just Rosa- pushed. Yeah. Uh, Roz- <laughs> I don't Roz- know what happened. <laughs> yeah. Rosala added, quote, if anyone had done that to someone from my family, I would have killed the guilty person. I would have ripped his heart out and I would have eaten it. End quote. Oh, okay. Convincing story. <laughs> <laughs> the confession prompted fury from Isabel Peake's parents, understandably, mm-hmm. and their lawyer claimed Rosala's behavior and media interview were an act to appear mentally unstable because in France, a killer with severe psychiatric problems can't be brought to trial. Others suggested that he did it for money. French Interior Minister Jean-Pierre Chauvinmont was also critical and said he doubted the article's authenticity. But French police were reported to have said that Rosala made similar comments in an off-the-record conversation with them. Rosala claimed that he knew Emily Bazin and met her at the University of Amiens. He said she was dating two different men and that one of the men was upset about it. So Rosala killed her. Of course. Oh, (laughs) as you do. (laughs) As one does. To avenge this man. He said, quote, it's disgusting to make a man suffer like that, unquote. Wow, what a spin. (laughs) I'm so dizzy now from the spin. Uh, As for Corinne Kylo, he claimed that he followed her on the train with the intent to steal from her, but then just like just killed her. And he didn't understand what happened himself. He called it pure madness, quote. After Rosala's arrest in January 2000, police attempted to reconstruct the murder of Peak with a life-size dummy thrown from a train. The operation was coordinated by Remy Julien, a stunt advisor engaged by the French Transport Ministry to assist police with the reconstruction. Julien had worked on almost 50 films, including James Bond, Features for Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, The Living Daylights, License to Kill, and Goldeneye. He also coordinated car stunt scenes in the 1969 classic The Italian Job. Detectives from Peak's home, County of Staffordshire, joined investigating magistrates and gendarmes to witness the reconstruction. By the way, you know what this reminds me of? Remember, we did Wayne Williams a little while ago, and they were like throwing 
They did oh, a the, simulation. Yeah, yeah, on uh, uh, Atlanta Monster. Yeah, yeah. They threw a fake body off the bridge. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> seems uh, it seems like a stretch, but okay. Yes, it does. The dummy was forced from a window. It bounced headfirst off the track and flicked up, hitting the side of the train. It was decapitated, smashed against a post, and scattered into pieces in the dirt, just yards from where Peek's corpse was found. I'm just wondering what it proves. <laughs> I mean, they could have they could have just got some I don't know engineers to recalculate to like the speed yeah. and the weight of a human. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I just uh, thought it was fascinating. <laughs> seems seems like quite the show. Yes. Exactly. Um, White powder from the dummy dusted the side of the track, enabling investigating police to analyze how the body fell. The position of the mutilated dummy was carefully recorded on film, of course, because it, before it was gathered up for analysis. The reconstruction was then repeated three more times that day. Ooh, fun day for fun day for yeah. everybody. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. The extradition from Portugal of Rosala was originally expected to take only 48 hours, but his lawyers took advantage of Portuguese laws, which forbid the extradition of suspects who risk a higher sentence than the maximum 25 years in jail in Portugal. In March 2000, Rizala slashed his arm and neck with a razor blade and was transferred to a prison hospital. But Portuguese prison, author prison authorities at the time dismissed it as, quote, an attempt to draw attention to himself, end quote. And on June 28, 2000, Rizala was still imprisoned in Portugal, waiting for a final appeal on his extradition to France when he blocked his cell door with a bar from his bed and then set his mattress on fire. The guards were watching the Portugal-France Euro 2000 semifinal on television at the time, and I'm assuming that's football, but I don't really know. <laughs> I'm assuming so, too. Let's go with yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> let us know. Um, yeah. ac according to authorities, the mattress was fireproof, so it didn't burn, but it did produce a lot of smoke. Rosala was still alive when guards forced their way in, and he was rushed out of the jail for treatment, but died later. The conclusion was that he died from asphyxiation. Rosala was supposed to have been under, quote, heavy surveillance at the time of his death. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Wow. What do you got, Beth? Well, he is D-E-A-D -E dead. That's all we know. <laughs> all right. Period. Next uh, next question. Uh, so now we're going to get into what we think made him snap and our takeaways. What do you got? I don't know everything that happened to him in Algeria, but it sounds like a lot of shit went down. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said he was gang raped and it's possible that some other bad things happened to him. And when he got to Marseille, he started acting out. Um, the social workers and psychiatrists said he was kind of lost and, and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, the one social worker said he had epileptic seizures, so there could mm -hmm. be some brain stuff going on. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like he may have been bisexual or pansexual, something which was not really understood at the time. So mm -hmm. he was probably pretty confused about his sexuality. Mm -hmm. He obviously had a lot going on and probably nobody to, to help him, or maybe he was unable to accept their help or refuse their help. Mm -hmm. um, and many of the articles linked Nadia's rejection of him with the start of the murders. But I think it's also possible that he resented all women, maybe due to something that happened in Algeria when he was being, quote, raised by women. Oh, 
hot take alert. <laughs> or it may be that he was just angry, just a really angry guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, women traveling alone on trains were easy targets. I don't know. I don't know. I can't disagree with anything that you said, though. Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on, the letter of the day today, kids, is T for trauma. Um, yeah. And trauma is on a spectrum. There's big T's and little T's and everything in between. I think living in a war zone was traumatic. Causing yeah. PTSD, moving countries at a young age is traumatic. And then there, as I understand it, there is plenty of racism to go around in France. Yeah, but uh, and, and nobody, nobody to talk to about it. <laughs> no, right? You can't, you can't do anything about it. Actually, one of my friends was just mentioning today that there's um, teachers aren't able to teach about um, race in school. Wow. Um, and uh, just how frustrating that is. Yeah, um, it kind of makes me think of people who are like, I don't see color. Yeah. You know, every, everybody sees color. Absolutely. You see it, so let's talk about it. You know, Absolutely. You just pretend it isn't there. It's not doing anything for anybody. It's not helpful. It's actually, that is, uh, I think... Uh, welcome to Culture Corner. I think when somebody says that, it's it's um it can be accepted as a violent statement to say I don't see color means you don't see me. Um, and oh, wow. this conversation I... is over. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really think about it like that, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think, um, BIPOC people, black indigenous people of color, uh, is why I use that term. BIPOC people are perpetually just like gaslit. Like this thing is happening and nobody, there's nothing I can do about it. No, there's nothing, nothing to worry about. What racism? What elephant in the room? Nobody, Uh, there's no race. What are you talking about? (laughs) Exactly. And racism is traumatic. It's violent. And you don't have to beat somebody over the head or even say the N-word to express it. Like I said, saying I don't see color is an act of racial violence. So stop it. Uh, It can be as small as like white kids sitting together in a cafeteria telling you to go back to where you came from. Someone commenting about how the food from your home, you know, smells gross or looks gross or saying something stupid that's out of your control about your accent, your hair, your skin tone. Um, So I think that that might have been traumatic for him uh, when he moved to France. And kids can be so cruel. They're mean, Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense that he joined the wrong crowd. I mean, he was looking for acceptance. I think he I agree what he said about um, him being on the LGBTQ spectrum, just not sure where he fit. Um, And I think he was just a young man struggling with everything. And I don't know if psychopathy is something people are born with. Beth can tell us. But if it (laughs) or if it's something you can develop as a result of trauma. Um, But uh, a little it's they don't really know for sure but mm-hmm. there is uh something they they call the psychopath gene okay so if you have this gene then you're more likely to be a psychopath but Ooh. that doesn't mean you're going to uh behave like a psychopath um trauma can trigger it Ooh. okay so that's what i mean his girlfriend yes, broke exactly. up with him and then he starts seeing these flashes 
and killed three people. Uh, yeah. So I think that he, I don't know if he had the gene or not, but uh, he was triggered. And I think um, it all, it started from way back uh, when he was uh, a, a young man in Algeria and uh, yeah. terrible things happened to him. Yeah. Um, also, my heart goes out to uh, the, the child who was raped and the families yeah. and friends of the women who were killed. Yeah. Um, and uh, not an excuse, but an explanation. I feel bad for the child that Sid Ahmed Razala was. Right. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So um, there is a lot of tips that I got from this uh, expertvagabond.com article, which we'll link up in the show notes. So I'm just going to list a few. Uh, I know it's Rona time and people are like, travel. Um, But people are are traveling, right? Um, Driving uh, across country to go see relatives for Thanksgiving. Not my bag, but hey, you do you, boo. Um, Or uh, flying places to be connected with family or, you know, uh, if like another country will let you enter, uh, Americans are not allowed anywhere right now, but if another country will let you enter and you are traveling, just a couple things to keep in mind. Um, there are, uh, travel scams. So before you travel anywhere, read up on them, um, write down emergency, uh, information for local police, ambulance services, directions oh, to the nearest idea. embassy. Yes. And you can save all the information that you ha- have that you need on a small USB thumb drive, like clip it to your keys or something oh, um, wow. and ha- keep safe copies of your passport and other oh, important documents. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, check the state department website, lock, your, lock up your valuables. Um, Ask locals for advice, but be cautious. Um, Taxi drivers are hit and miss. Hotel and hostel staff is a good place to start. Send your itinerary to friends and family. Don't share too much on social media or with strangers. Um, uh, Be aware of your clothing. Try to assimilate. Learn basic self-defense before you go anywhere. Just look up a YouTube (laughs) video. Uh, Project uh, situational awareness. Um, hide your emergency cast and let your bank know where you're going. Um, be careful at the ATM machine, cover up your pin, uh, and, uh, stop using your back pocket. Cause that's the pickpocket's first place. Huh. Uh, and stay relatively sober. Um, enjoy yourself, but don't get obliterated because then yeah. you won't enjoy your trip or remember very it, or you could get I, taken um, advantage of. Right. Yeah. yeah very and easy. trust your instincts head on a swivel. And there you go. There's more and you'll have the information in the show notes. Now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any true crime goodies or any content about or by any othered or marginalized groups. 
Undisclosed is a podcast about wrongful convictions in the United States. It's hosted by Rabia Chaudhry, a BIPOC woman. Uh, she's a Muslim woman. Uh, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. She started it with uh, fellow attorneys uh, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. The podcast started by investigating the conviction of Adnan Saeed. You guys remember that one? And the murder of yeah. Heyman Lee. And we were all yep. hooked. And I thought uh, that uh, that was it. But I was wrong. There's been like 19 seasons since then. I had oh, no wow. idea. Uh, or cases they've covered. And a new one started this week. The thing I fell in love with with the show in the beginning was how much they shed light on wrongful convictions. It's estimated that there are 20,000 people behind bars right now who've been wrongfully convicted in wow. the United States. And they take apart the U.S. criminal justice system by look, taking a closer look at the uh, perpetration of the crime itself, its investigation, the trial and ultimate verdict and finding new evidence that never made it to court. I love wow. it. Yeah, sounds great. What do you got? Um, I just wanted to shout out Canadian True Crime. It's by Christy Lee, who's an Australian living in Canada. So she oh. has it's confusing because she has an Australian accent, but huh. she she lives in Canada and she talks about crimes that took place in Canada. Right on. And a recent episode uh, that I listened to was called The Saskatoon Freezing Deaths. Oh. And it's about corruption in the police department in Saskatoon and some of the police officers were driving indigenous men to the outskirts of Saskatoon <gasps> and then just dropping them off in the freezing cold. Stop it. Yeah. Wow. And they called, they called it starlight tours. <gasps> ha 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 guys. Yeah. Wow. And uh, many of these men froze to death. So, Oh my God. Yeah. It's Man, pretty fucked up. That is fucked up. But uh, th that epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous people is not an understatement uh yeah they are uh it's wow um that sounds fascinating thank you for that shout out beth You're canadian welcome. true crime color me yep. subscribed well that's <laughs> it for today folks beth in the meantime where can the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com our facebook page is fruit loops pod and our discussion group is fruit loops pod discussion on facebook we are also on twitter and instagram at fruit loops pod and links to our sources will be in our footnotes if you want to support the show you can send us a donation on the cash app just google fruit loops pod cash app or you can become a monthly patron through our podbean patron page this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there
detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.